Well, let us thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for this day commemorating the resurrection of your Son, the centerpiece of our faith. We'd ask that you would bless us in him and bless us in our um, understanding of the gospel. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, sermon notes pretty clear. You've seen this passage before. I was in it a year ago talking about some other aspect uh, of the passage. It's the passage in Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, consequently the gospel. But it was on my mind all, all week. I think as you probably have noticed in your own uh, feeds coming across, a lot of Christians, both a lot of ministries, a lot of individuals are are posting stronger things than you normally see about the gospel, about the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Um, a lot of people have been talking about it because churches have been canceled the nation over. Christians have been threatened with arrest. Some have been fined. Uh, one judge, I think, stood in favor in Louisville, Kentucky for a church that was going to do a drive-through service. And... Uh, and put an injunction on the city of Louisville, said you can't arrest these people. Things are going to happen, no doubt. You're going to, Christians are going to be of all stripes. Um, but you, I've just been noticing the content has been more about the risen Lord. Um, so verses have been leaping at me. And when your verses leap at you during the week, you start processing them, which I, should I talk about that. And, uh, and this morning on Fox News, uh, Franklin Graham was on out of Central Park, an empty Central Park other than the tents of Samaritan's purse behind him, um, and he preached the gospel. You know, it was the Fox Easter message. Usually you get the pablum of some, oh, it's a time of renewal, that sort of nonsense. He was preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And God bless uh, Franklin Graham for that. Consequently, that's what you think of as a believer and a pastor on Easter. If you're a, uh, That's where you find yourself centered anyway. And so I, my mind had gone to Corinthians 15 of its own volition and I had worked up, um, you know, put the sermon notes together, I realized I'd been in Corinthians 15 just a year ago, a little over a year ago. Um, I said, nah, it's Easter, do it anyway. And I, I wasn't laying out a fleece or anything looking for confirmation, but after I'd gotten my sermon done, I was looking at the Facebook, and up comes a, um, a comment from Dave Leach, posting a painting I knew of, of Peter and John running to the tomb. Um, and he has Corinthians 15, the portion I was covering, quoted in the, you know, his comments, and made some nice remarks about it that were, he'll say, yeah, this is, this is where I want to go to. We start with verse 1, which is, you know, sort of a, verse 1 and 2 is sort of, it's a dump truck full of material. You could probably stop verses 1 and 2, preach for two days, and be, and be done with it. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel, which you received, 
in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. Oh my gosh, the death of a thousand clauses. But every one of them, heavy with meaning. And which, first off, 2,000 years ago, St. Paul is having to remind the believers. He said, I would remind you. And, and, and too often, Christianity suffers in places where people stop reminding. As another place, St. Paul says, to write the same things to you, it is not irksome to me and safe for you to, to tell you the same things over and over again. Um, there are some situations where people I have known, where I know they have been there when I've preached sermon 1, 2 through 28 on that topic, whatever that topic was, and on lesson 29, they said, wow, you were there. You could have learned this three years ago. We benefit from that reminder, and especially when it comes to the things that are in the gospel, which as, as, a, as a church, we're sort of, you know there's no membership, and you know there's no um, uh, secondary doctrine policy. We say if you are members of Christ, you are members of one another, all souls, if you attend there regularly. We don't get to add anything to that. But the way you become a member of Christ is through the gospel. So consequently, the gospel is close to our measure because it's what makes a Christian and what makes a non-Christian. And you're supposed to be reminded in what the terms were. What was actually said and how it was said. You might say, um, I make a comment on the right-hand side, that we were strict constructionists about this. What were the terms used? How easy it is for a term uh, to lose all of its value. Um, years ago in American political theater, we were discussing being born again because of a president who claimed to be born again. And all the Christians who believe being and born again, which is being born from above, experiencing the gospel, repentance from dead works, renewal in the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, were thinking one thing, but something else was being thought. When asked, one person in that uh, political arena, what they meant by born again was actualizing your own potential. Ser completely serious. Not a, not a, not, not, didn't break down laughing at the end of it. Actualizing your own potential. That's why you, you wonder when you get those Easter messages from non-believing ministers on TV about renewal as if there's no difference between, you know, Ishtar fertility worship and the new crops coming up this year and Christianity, Jesus rising from the dead. Because we're really what we're talking about is renewal. No, we're not. What terms this was preached to you? You need to be reminded what terms the gospel was preached to you. You could start getting lazy about less important things. You know, say, you could say, 
you know, remember what terms I preached to you, your eschatology? Okay, okay yeah, but it's not the, we're not stickers, sticklers about that. If we get a little bit goofy in our terminology and things get a little hard to understand because we didn't sit close enough to the actual meaning of all the words, we don't want to be you know, precisionists about that, but we want to be precisionists about the gospel. Remember what terms. Be reminded what terms. Because you heard this message preached to you. It says, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. The, each one of those shifts just a little bit, not just what it's about doing, but what the doing of it functions like. In which you stand. Now, obviously, which you received. And we know that that phrase, like out of John 1, uh, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. We know that we use it constantly in, you know, evangelistic circles. Have you received Jesus Christ? Okay. We know that something about that word is, I, I have taken in this message. But a couple things are practical that happen. Okay? You did this thing. You, whatever the reception is that you had for the gospel, there is a kind of life lived and a kind of benefit gained. Okay? In which you stand. That's the kind of life lived. It's how, how I comport myself. My posture in this world. My successful, actually. My standing is... Not stand, standing and falling over. It's standing. <coughs> and by which you're saved. You're, that's a thing that, that happened to you. Standing you participate in. Salvation is done to you. You can't, couldn't save yourself. Your faith in Jesus Christ couldn't save you. It wasn't you you were saving yourself from. It was God you were saving yourself from. And consequently, he had to save you. This is what you received. You stand this way. You are saved this way. Conditionally, and look at that phrase, if you hold it fast. Now, some people, if you, if you believe you can lose your salvation, some people say, well, if I let go at some point of my faith, I'm damned. Okay? I'm out of that camp, but I know many Christians are. <coughs> I believe that you're, once you're saved, you're saved. And, uh, uh, but he's saying that your standing and your salvation are dependent upon the intensity with which you believe. You received something, a message came to you, you received it, if you hold that fast, that reception, which means your grip on it is really strong. That's what holding something fast means. Um, nautical terms, you would you'd tie up a boat and make it fast. Not make it quickly, make it stick. 
don't let the not come undone. That's the condition. That's the depending. You receive something, you stand in it, you're saved by it. If your faith had the intensity and commitment that it needed, and then it throws in, you say, that's making me feel a little wobbly. Evan, this is supposed to be Easter and encouragement and renewal, times of renewal. And uh, actualizing your own potential. Then it says something even more wobbly, unless you believed in vain. Because these things, my reception, my holding of it, standing in it, saved by it, if it's all vain, if it's all pointless, that's what the word basically means, futile, does not accomplish what it claims to accomplish, I should be concerned. And, and when I go into this passage, something that jumps out at me all the time, unless you believed in vain. And then later on in the passage, you'll see them down the page, there are two, three other places where in vain, in vain, in vain are used. And I don't think necessarily I can claim that St. Paul was making a three-point sermon for Evan by saying, I'm going to title it, Unless You Believed in Vain, and the three vanities of the Easter message are, but that's what I'm going to do to it. Um, I want to draw your attention to it so you see it again. And I'm not saying something important about three vanities. I'm just saying there are three ways vanity enters this question. He says, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed pointlessly, without effect. Then he goes into the actual message. Remember, he says, I want to remind you what terms I preached to you, the gospel, which you received. For I delivered for you, verse 3, as of first importance, what I also received. Now look how he ties himself to that. He's, he's an apostle, but he received the gospel just as you did. And he passed it on to you how he received it. What terms you received it in. I, this is the first importance, what I also received. This gospel is no different. 2,000 years ago, we're looking at these few verses and going, yep, that's the gospel. And I want you to stop and look at what it is that's included. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, look at that. What's in the gospel? Is the Trinity in the gospel? No. Now, I believe in the Trinity. I think it's good to believe in the Trinity. What is, seems to be the big ticket item that he expounds upon? He doesn't expound upon the death of Jesus Christ. Too many people, death is so frightening, death is so horrific, and death is, is so, uh, a crucifix is 
can undo you. You get some sort of late Middle Ages crucifix that looks like agony in wood, just some grasping Christ and nailed to a cross. People focus on the death. But all of us die. And some people have died more horrifically than Jesus Christ. It's not the how story the how horrific the death of Christ was. It was, wasn't good. But he just says that Christ died for our sins. The key thing, the death was for our sins. That's what modifies the death. It's not how painful the death was or how grotesque. But that according to the scriptures, he died for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. That he was buried gets four words and nothing else. Not even there's some gain. doesn't say that the harrowing of hell or the going down, descending into hell for three days, blah, blah, blah. It was just he was buried. Because these two things, dead and buried, you're all going to enjoy. And you're not that miraculous. You're not, you know, you might be a wonder, you might, people might want to start a religion in your memory, but really, you're just dead and buried like the rest of us. It's really the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of his resurrection means that his commitment in this story, in this myth, is that our God has seized control of the most important question in our, our life, which is our death. He has been raised. And, he's, and this is where he goes to say, i got proofs for this. And nobody is going to deny that Jesus Christ was killed. Nobody's going to deny that he was buried. They're going to deny that he was raised. And that's what a liberal will do. A liberal seminary professor or a pastor will... So yeah, you know, Jesus Christ was probably a known, uh, you know, rabbi, teacher in Palestine. He was probably, yeah, probably killed by the Romans, probably, probably, probably. But God raised from the dead, you got to be kidding me, how, how medieval. That's what they reject. And that's what Paul, even in the first century, he's not dealing with liberalism. He's just dealing with the problem of the resurrection of the dead. This is not something... Remember how, how in, when Paul is in Athens? And they get weirded out by this resurrection thing. We have to hear you more about this. This is not what religions generally offer. But Paul recommends, that says how he appears to Cephas, the Twelve, and then James, and then all the apostles, and there's 500 people all at once, and then finally me. And he says, For I am the least of the apostles, verse 9. Unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. So there's your first, you might say, possibility of vanity. One of the ways that the gospel would not work, you could not stand and you would not be saved if God did not 
help you stand or save you. Okay? One of the vanities, one of the pointlessness is that your, your existence running around in Christian circles didn't get the ability to walk in the grace of God and didn't have the salvation that you presumed was present in that belief is that in some way it was vain for God, God's, God's action was vain. God's action was pointless regarding you. So you have a possibility. One is that God is too weak. He can't work at so much heavy lifting, so much sin. The problem is, like I said before, it's Sin is our offense against him. If it were against you, you would be powerful enough to forgive. So the, the idea that God's too weak to save somebody, it's salvation from him. I think what a lot of people do is they try to make God saving you, saving you from the devil. Saving you from the creeping gaping maw of hell as it's trying to tear you down and all the bad things and evil as a personified substance doing something to you and God steps in and yay, rescues you and he's got to be strong to rescue you but it's actually him he's trying to rescue you from. It is God tossing you into the gaping maw of hell because he hasn't forgiven you. The suggestion that he's too weak to forgive is one of the ways that the you know his his grace towards me was not in vain. What are the possibilities to make it vain? Well, the other one would be you're too wicked. He's not going to forgive you because I've just God has his limits, right? It's not just that I'm too weak. I just I'm sorry. I'm just I died for sins, but not that sinner. I think what's nice about this passage is that Paul, right before that, says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul wasn't a sinner. He was a sinner and an enemy. He was a sinner and an enemy who collected the highest price you can collect from your enemy, which is killing them. He had killed Christians for their faith, and he always carried that with him. He's the chief of sinners, he says. He says, I'm unfit to be an apostle. We could call an apostle. He's not, you know, we have someone who has experienced the grace of God not being in vain for them, even though they were, as far as they could tell, at our own measurements, you know, would consider him, if you knew him as a non-Christian, nobody likes this Saul of Tarsus guy. No one wants to hear that he's coming to town. He was the Spanish Inquisition. <coughs> what are the other options? We got, he's too weak, you're too bad. Well, let's go back to our initial two verses. What does it depend on if you hold it fast? What if you don't? Could the grace be in vain? 
from God would be conditional on your belief. I really want to, as I've thought about the gospel in people's lives, or people coming to the gospel, I know a lot of people love to toy with concepts, toy with ideas, adopt them, you might say, uh, temporarily, or see if it works out, kind of join the club, talk in terms that Christians talk in. I don't know there's anything bigger they don't know there's anything more definite. He says, no, you make it fast. Now we don't, it's like we all tie slip knots. And there are other knots that, uh, classical reference, slip knots, you know, you go pop them, it's like tying your shoes, you know, a little bow knot, and you know, I just pull one thing and I un unwrap it. You tell a kid that is unwrapping a present with a you don't like grandma tying some sort of 28 bow hitch, something or other on there that will get, get, get through it. But you love to have the mother who ties the slip knot. So you just pull this one, little Johnny. Little Johnny pulls it, and the ribbon falls off the package, and the kid can get into his toy. That's how, that's most of the knots that we hold. That's how we hold ourselves fast to this faith of ours, rather than saying it's a Gordian knot. And the Gordian knot um, from Gordium. Uh, Asia, in Asia. Uh, big st famous story of Alexander the Great. There was this temple where there was this yoke, like an oxen yoke, agricultural yoke, with a knot on it, big rope knot. It was so complicated, you couldn't see the ends of the rope, you couldn't, and whoever could undo the knot would conquer all Asia. Alexander the Great shows up. And either somehow, either by some secret being passed to him, or the myth is different at different points. He either knows exactly what to pull, and the knot just falls off the oak. The other is, and which I like more, he pulled out his sword and cut it off. None of this nonsense. It was untied, wasn't it? Well, the Gordian knot was that kind of thing. The, the untangled knot that we can't... Well, that's what holds something fast. We want a knot. We've we got to examine that the, the, the grace of God pouring out to you is not in vain if you hold it fast. That's the one thing in the passage that is the, the grace of God to you being not going to help you stand and not going to save you. He says it will help you, you will be able to stand by which you're saved if you hold it fast. So when you're wondering whether the grace of God can happen in vain or its vanity is present, it's going to be where he declares himself to be not there to help you stand and not there to save you because you didn't hold it with this kind of knot. You didn't, on your knees, commit yourself to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord of your being, forever. Amen where you gave up, and I don't believe some of you were at the reading on Wednesday and we were covering the, the moment where Jane Studdick becomes a Christian. One of the most beautiful descriptions of the psychology of someone who forgot there was even a me. That everything that had been her was gone. She had completely bowed the knee to God.
Absolutely. No question. Never to be reconsidered. You hold it fast. Because if you don't hold it fast, you can't presume to be able to stand because of this or to be able to be saved because of this. You don't get partial salvation for partial faith. You don't get partial Christian virtue for partial faith. You are a non-Christian pretending to be holy and it's going to blow up in your face. On the contrary, I worked. This is a great little section. Let me go back and read 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So what happened in his life achieved the standing, achieved the salvation. On the contrary, so contrary to vanity, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. So there's a, when you hold something fast, some people look at the standing in Christ and the and the salvation of Christ as entirely I'm just waiting faithfully to be the open vessel where God pours the the the, the virtues in and God pours the, the salvation in. It's His grace that saves you. That's certain, and you don't earn your salvation. But Paul says, contrary to an, a vain faith. A vain faith, nothing actually happens. An actual faith, there's a participation in it. Some. He says, I worked harder, but it was the grace of God. So he's claiming that it was grace, but the, the eye was still present. It had stepped forward, just like the eye is present in the beginning. I would remind you, you received, you hold it fast, and you either actively live in it so that you are stepping forward working harder than them all to prove that your standing in Christ is what it should be. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He's saying, this is what we are as Christians. The other apostles, me, you, everybody, we preach this, you believe this. If you hold that fast, you can stand in it and be saved by it. But, there are other paths. Remember, there are three vanities in this Easter vanity sermon. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Since we preached it, I would think you would have thought that that would be a key element. Remember what terms we preached to you? And remember where in that argument... I started to elaborate. It was dead, yes. Buried, yes. Raised. Well, I don't know if we really, modern scholars, are believing that resurrection is really a possibility. They were saying it for other reasons. It may be that some of these Christians were coming out of Jewish communities like the Sadducees who denied the resurrection or the effect of the Sadducean teaching was such, or that they may have been Greeks who couldn't comprehend the idea of resurrection. Moderns just don't like miracles. So they think they can subtract, you know, Jesus was a great teacher. He was, we could call him even the Son of God. 
But many of them think that his death was a failure because we have, they knew he was killed. He may have even died for your sins, but it was a failure because they do subtract the resurrection. They don't see it as victory. He says, if there has, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then let's reason this out closely. If there is no resurrection and we preached Christ as raised, Christ was not raised. Then Christ has not been raised. Verse 14, which is my other key out verse. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Unless you believed in vain, and then he throws a few vanities in you through the rest of this chapter. God's grace was not in vain. If this isn't true, what we say is vanity, pointless, and what you do with it is pointless. If it's this first, the second vanity of our passage, the preacher is doing something vain. What you're left with is either the choice between it's true, it's not true. If it's not true, if it's not true, we preach about Christ. All we're left with as teachers of it is kind of an unction. You know, we run around some of the most unbelieving churches are the most performative about things like Easter. Because really, it's not really that it happened. It's whether or not we experience renewal of life in community and in community and, and various other social virtues. And you get these, you know, gelded priests talking about, with a lot of unction, the religion that has gathered around it. Not whether or not it was true. Paul says, no, 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 you don't seem to understand. This is, this is just awful. Um, consequently, consequently, the vanity of, a, of saying such a thing is such a sad... Well, anytime you look at that kind of religious expression, a church where the priests of it, the teachers of it. Nobody believes what they're saying. They're using the terminology. They remembered the terms it was preached to them in, but it's just there to create sufficient religious fervor. And it doesn't really matter what the religion, as long as there's fervor. Consequently, for it not to be in vain, since we're concerned, we don't want to have believed in vain, so I got to chase down where these vanities can exist and realize I have to hold it fast in order for me to have the only thing that the grace of God would stop from saving me. If, if it's vain for me to believe with partial faith, that's something I need to correct. Or I need to make sure when I'm preaching the gospel to somebody that you say, unless you hate your father and mother, you have no part of him. Unless, you know, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. Unless you put your hand to the plow and do not look back. Unless you give all that you own to the poor and follow me, you can't follow me. I mean, Christ is always going, uh, I've got to make this really hard. 
going to make it really hard. We know that first vanity is handled by whether or not you've preached the gospel that in no uncertain terms you have to believe in absolute terms. You have to give all. If any man would not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Is that clear verse? Just came to my mind. The second vanity is understanding how important when Paul says in what terms and the truth of those terms. We preach a clear offer of forgiveness of sins, a redeemed life, a standing in Christ, a salvation. We preach it clearly. Because my only option, if I'm going to do anything religious, is unctuous religious nonsense that is just there for performative religion. Many American wasps are happy with that. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestants like going off to their Episcopal church, believing nothing, caring not a bit, but they really like the fact that their church has such nice landscaping. And they feel kind of, you know, invigorated by uh, the day. It's like when they go across the golf course away down the street at the country club. It's about the same thing there. Good, good landscaping. And I feel better. That's their unction. That is their pretense. We are not that. If it's not going to be in vain, it's going to be real. If it's not going to be vain, it's going to be true. Consequently, in my teaching it to someone, what I pass on to someone, has to be a clear offer of redemption. And standing in holiness, because that's one of the things promised, in which you stand. It's how you're able to just be the virtue of a Christian. So, to dodge the vanity, believing we have to be, remain clear and remind and understand the clarity of terms and the clarity of the truth of the terms. So we're reminded, we're clear, we're true. Another thing is to do is to watch out for those points in any preacher. Even the believing preachers. So easy for pastors, you know, because it's a, it's a job to start ministering certain things, you know, you have, you, some of you have spotted various, you know, hobby horses I get on, and I'm always talking about the narrative, or the subjective objectivism, you know, you say, Evan, can't you just preach Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, I can, it's this morning, but I want you to be listening to any teacher, even the ones that, as you follow your faith into the rest of your life, because um, that will happen, be listening for Christ. In your friends, be listening for Christ. You don't want them, even in their conversation, to always be about something theological or something interesting or something literary. Jesus Christ has to be, to not be vain, to be able to stand in him, it has to be a claim of truth about certain things. And you have me looking, like here is addressing the resurrection. There may be other aspects of the claim of the gospel that something I would deny would mean that what I was preaching wasn't effective. The, the Gnostics got around it by saying, well, he didn't actually die. You know, die. He was just an apparent being because, of course, the aeons of 
emanation down from the Godhead. He could only appear to be real, but not actually be real, so it was only an apparent death, and he was only... Uh, he just removed the death. You could do, the, you could do this damage with other denials. But here it's Easter, so we're talking about the resurrection. Well, our preaching can be in vain. That's, so we just want to straighten that out. We ought to delineate what happens to preaching when it's vain. If it cannot offer you the real thing, it is just going to be religious gas. And your faith is in vain. Now, too many people think that faith is the thing itself, that I just have to be good at that. Being a strong believer of something, whether it's the Republican Party, uh, gravity, whatever it is you believe in strongly, God approves of faithy people. He says your faith is in vain if it's not true. It means that I believed something that was not true. Now, if you believe something that is not true, it's kind of really sad. This is why lying is so bad. Okay? Now, I lied as a kid. Not a lot. Not habitually. So I never really got, got a thing for it. You know, not really, you know, this is a lot of fun. Messing with people. Some people who love to mess with other people by telling them untruths. Just stuff they make up unnecessarily. Their life's reasonably interesting as it is, but no, they have to make up that I've got leukemia and I'm burying twins, but I lost one. I'm telling you a lies that I have heard. People you say, you'll be found out claiming to be pregnant with twins and have tuberculosis or whatever it is. They love lying. Now, where the problem of lying is not just, oh, that's just icky, that you have such an embrace of the false. Problem is, in one case I was thinking, those bad lies, I, I'm pregnant with twins, one has died, and I have got, I forget what disease she had, tuberculosis, something like that, and was getting this other Christian girl completely in her, under her sway by these lies. Just believed them. The other girl believed them. They weren't true. The girl was nice, that it was dear, that it was a good friend, and she was living in a false world. She had no idea that it was all a lie. That's the tragedy of it. That's the malevolence of it. How dependent are we on each other for signals about the world we live in where we're trusting people to give us a good signal, to tell us, you know, when you call them and they say they're at the East Side Marketplace, that they really are. They didn't just go, oh, I'm at the Palouse Mall, actually, but I'm not going to tell them that. I want him to believe I'm at the East City, the, the East Side mar Marketplace. The person on the phone thinks that's where you are. Their world has you in that spot. Sometimes that world starts to develop as the lies increase, especially as they increase about the nature of a historic event, something out of your past, you made a claim and somebody else starts repeating it. That's the big tragedy. The problem is that's not a real world. 
So any attempt to stand in the virtue of the Christian, any salvation that was in it, because remember he died for sinners, he died for our sin, was buried, and was raised. If it is vain, it didn't provide me that salvation, didn't provide me that standing, didn't provide me that atonement for sin. So if I do any of it, if I if I'm step into that unctuous religion of untrue preaching of the thing, I'm just going to be stepping into my share of it is this pretense. I am pretending, you've been in churches where that's the case. Where the pretense occurs even when it's true, but since they're pretending, since they don't actually believe it actually, they're pretending to be Christians. And then, 20 years on, turns out that the associate pastor has run off with the organist. And it's a dude. Now they, you just, well, where does this sit come from? What well, becomes from the vanity, because our ability to stand in our salvation, our ability to be redeemed from our sins, our ability to be saved, is all on its truth and not being in vain. The grace given to you was not in vain. You responded to it, and you were not living in lies. And that pretense <coughs> of standing, that pretense of salvation, um, have you ever known somebody that you thought wasn't saved and hear them talk about their salvation, and it just goes, ah, we got all the words right, but he doesn't know the tune. They can sing the words, but they don't know the tune. And this, this is something I've mentioned probably a number of times before, anytime I go through this passage, because it's Pascal's wager, which I think is a bad wager. Because St. Paul thinks it's a bad wager. Pascal's wager was, hey, believe in Jesus, because uh, if you're wrong, you live a good life. If you're right, you go to heaven. No, you dummy. If you're wrong, you're a pretentious fool. And man, you've seen neckbeards. You know, some guy with his fedora. Thinking he's something he is not. And whatever kind of pretension you can picture. This is the worst. This is the worst pretension. Where something as unattainable to mankind as holiness and forgiveness before the great God. That's not true, but we're going to pretend that we have been. Our lives are not going to reflect it, because it will all be unctuous religion. And then we will fall in a spectacular way with somebody else's wife. If Christ, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. So that's the teacher's vanity. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. In case you're missing the point. If Christ, verse 17, has not been raised, your faith is futile, vain, and you are still in your sins. Because there is no forgiveness in pretend. then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Everybody who went before you died an idiot. Died a pretentious idiot. 
died the worst kind of idiot you can imagine. Because, for if in this life, for this life only, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Of all men, including the neckbeards. Including the most ridiculous Janeite out there who is trying to live out pride and prejudice. She's sad. Not as sad as the Christian. Because there is no forgiveness and they think there is. There is no died, buried, and resurrected Savior forgiving their sins. They think there is. And they're running around acting according to the rules that some guy wrote up and said, hey, why don't you try those rules out? And you just can't do it because you can't be holy. Because you're just like every other non-believer. You're just not a Christian. The vanity of your belief. We may have believed in vain. But in fact, this is what's wonderful about this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We were talking before. Was it? What was your gun? You had suggested. Uh, I reckon, and say so people say, Christ is risen, um, and every everybody schmarmy turns to the next pew. He is risen indeed. And almost like, oh, is, is indeed just like a pretension word just because? Let's say the gun was suggesting, I reckon. Or, uh, but here, the apostle doesn't say indeed. He says, in fact. Now, indeed is just an old way of saying in fact. It actually happened, indeed. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the concrete nature of the faith. What is it? It's not just the story about Jesus on the cross and the, the tomb and the burial and the raised and the guards and the angels and the running apostles. It's something bigger than that. For as by man came death, all of, all of a sudden it's no longer, you know, we're kind of a religion that started up around a, you know, a rabbi and we really liked him and he taught us for a few years and then the, guy, the bad guys killed him and so we kind of got a little mixed up in the head and thought he'd been raised from the dead and we built a religion around it and it's all circling around this loss of our rabbi and we put it back together again and, and tried to sell this thing with his resurrection. No, no, the apostle Paul wasn't part of that group. He was killing people in that group. And then he met the risen Lord. One, as one untimely born, he met him. Changed his mind about it. In fact, and in fact, because it was true, and this is one of the blessings of St. Paul's later conversion, it was untimely, but he was not a vested agent, brainwashed into the cult. He saw very clearly that's what it was. It was a cult that had to be driven out of business until he met the raised Christ. In fact, for as by one man came death, now he's not talking about even the birth of Jesus, or he's saying, you know, this is actually the whole story. All of history, since the beginning, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, what? 
Weren't we talking about the, the Easter story? Come on, Paul. No. We're talking about the whole story. If this is God, if this is Christ, if this is the Son of God raised from the dead, let's go back to the beginning of the creation of man and say, look, sin came into the world, that's where that story started, and the second Adam, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, that's us. Tell the correct story, because in fact, if Christ is raised, we're some of the most amazing people on the planet. This is the story of everyone, all the time, everywhere. All lives, all deaths, all ways of life are in this story. This is the choice we have on Resurrection Sunday. Whatever life you have, we have all sorts of people here. Farrier, tech guy, EMSI, student, more techie people. My wife, Elena is a rower for some college back east. The, the, the other Wilsons, they're, they're in retail. We're, we're doing different things, right? Having different jobs, different career paths, different narratives we're writing up. As believers, we are saying this life called Evan Wilson being a pastor, uh, running the big house, whatever it is, it occurs in a world where man fell 6,000 years ago, Christ came 2,000 years ago, redeemed man 2,000 years ago, and my story happens inside that story. So everything I do is informed by the presence of the story my personal story occurs in. When we are falsely, when we are vainly drawn to Jesus Christ and to the faith, we make Christianity a pretend narrative. And as a pretend narrative, it has to exist inside whatever the true story is. What is the actual true story? And the people in the non-Christian world look in at us like, oh, isn't it nice they pretend to have a religion? They pretend to have something that answers their questions. We're either dealing with something absolutely incredible or something absolutely silly. That's what we're at. We are actually the silliest creatures or the most incredible creatures. We got a grip. Because look at how he wraps this up. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, is that what you think is going on in the world? Jesus Christ is reigning. Until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do we exist in that world? As we go through this plague time, do we think of, oh, the story I'm living right now, happens to have a disease going around and we're all quarantined. And, but I believe in my God is reigning until he destroys everything, all of his enemies, death being one of them. That's what I'm waiting for. So how does it start informing how I live in this? I live more courageously. I live more satisfyingly because I don't believe in the choice between silly and incredible that I'm silly. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You are kind to us.
help us understand the greatness of the message, simplest, simply incredible message that all of the meaning and utility, the only utility in this world, Lord, is in your son's death, burial, and resurrection. We'd ask that you would redeem us in our thoughts, that we would understand how great it is, the thing we serve, and that we would steer away from the things that would make our faith vain. Correct us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.